Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm honored to share this important conversation with you today. I'm joined by Dr. Holly Richmond, who is doing such important and transformative work as a somatic psychotherapist, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a certified sex therapist. Her newly released book is called Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. It is an innovative look at both the somatic and the psychological factors in survivors' erotic recoveries. It's a valuable resource to survivors and to the people who love them, which is exactly why I was a wholehearted yes when Dr. Holly asked me to write the foreword for her book. Dr. Holly is regularly quoted in publications and media outlets, including the New York Times, CNN, Forbes, Oprah, Men's Health, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Health. She joined me for a rich conversation about her new book, and she brought such incredible wisdom to a listener question about communicating sexual boundaries with a new partner. I'm really grateful for the work that Dr. Holly is doing to uplift survivors of trauma and to promote sexual health, and I can't wait for you to hear from her. Hello, Holly. I am so glad that you are here with me today. Hi, Alexandra. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Oh my gosh, absolutely. On Reimagining Love, Holly, we start every episode, every conversation that I have with a guest expert. We start it with this relational self-awareness question that I really love. It's a question that reminds us that we get to be whole as we are and works in progress. So are you ready for the Reimagining Love question? I am. (laughs) All right. So tell me about a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately. Mm -hmm. I loved this question as I've been thinking about it. I'm going to focus on one area, but there's really 
There's two. So the relational area is friendships. And my growth point, I am extraordinarily conflict avoidant. Um, one of those people pleasers, just, you know, growing up in my house, no one yelled. We just shut down. Right. And people please to get through. So there's learning to step into conflict in a way that doesn't scare me. But the second piece of this, which I can't believe I'm still working on and I get that I'm still working on, which we're going to talk about in the conversation later, is shame. So I have made some mistakes in the last few months that have been hard to swallow. The mistakes have been pointed out to me. My gosh, I just so go to, but I'm not a bad person. And I don't think the person who I made the mistake with thinks that, but it's such a core belief system. I, oh my gosh, I appreciate you bringing this up. It is such a big one, right? It is such a big one. Whoever came to you to let you know that you had done something that was whatever it was, thoughtless or hurtful or careless, they were coming to you, I imagine, in the service of the relationship. And it is so hard to like disentangle the thing we did from the person we are. And I hear you, it does not matter how many fancy schmance degrees we've got behind our names and how many, you know, sessions we've spent on both sides of the therapy office. That like gremlin of shame is so challenging. I hear you. So so you have noticed yourself sitting with your mistakes and watching yourself kind of entangle your mistake with the person that you are and then having to push back. Absolutely. I'm a good person who made a mistake. Yeah. And that's hard. And the the thing I've noticed is I still want the external validation of other people in my life saying, oh no, you're a good person. And for therapists, you're doing such great work. You're making this huge impact. So I'm almost trying to balance, right? Oh, but this person is really upset with me, but wait a minute, I've got these other people saying you're doing great work and you are a good person. And that's wonderful. But that's not the growth point for me. It's, I need to believe, okay, I made a mistake. I need to take responsibility for that. I shouldn't be needing all this external validation to know that I'm okay and I'm not bad. Oh, damn. That's a really, really, really important one. Yeah. That like internal scorekeeping that we're at risk of doing like, okay, so because there's pain over here or there was mistake over here, I have to figure out, have I balanced it out with the good stuff? It's my balance sheet in order. Uh And what you are trying to do is not kind of like fill in that hole with the external validation, but just to say, I can make a mistake and still be a good person. And I don't need to kind of turn to external sources to puff myself back up again. Right, exactly. And back to the conflict avoidance piece I feel like when I look back at this mistake I made, I feel like I stepped right into that mistake because I was conflict avoidant. Yeah. Right? I knew something was going on for weeks or months, but I wanted to make it better. I so wanted to please this person that I just kind of kept traipsing along and it wasn't the right move. (laughs) That's like a huge growing edge right there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you rewind the tape, you can see, ugh, if I had spoken to this early on, rather than just traipsing along, avoiding the conflict, putting a smile on my face, this could have gone differently. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I just, I would love to share one more story here and I'll try to make this concise. So I was speaking with a client the other day who she's, she's really stepping out of her conflict avoidance and into her voice. And she's angry right now, mm-hmm. which is good, especially for survivors of sexual trauma. I'm like, wait, when I see that anger instead of the shame, I'm happy. And please know you're not going to stay angry forever, but this is a phase you have to go through. So she was telling me about this day that she was just feeling angry. She parked her car on the street, was walking into the hair salon, and she heard this huge crash. She turned around to look, and this woman had hit her car. And at this lovely, you know, 20-something young woman came out and was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. And so my client's telling me this story and I'm so resonating with that 20 something. And I just want to give her a hug. You made a mistake. That's You're right. You're not a bad person. That's right. That's it's right. It's all the same. That's right. It's all the same. Holly, if we just like <laughs> stopped the recording right there, like that was, that's just, there's so much value in that. I mean, just like a little side note on that. Isn't it so powerful when we as therapists are sitting with a client and an aspect of their story? And here it was the aspect Mm -hmm. of your client. You know, it was sort of this like side character in your client's story where you just kind of feel that resonance and that sense of like, oh my gosh, this is happening. Right. This is, this is everywhere. And we get to as therapists, you know, be in these spaces with our clients and knowing deeply how to offer support oftentimes because of our own experiences, right? So it is our own experiences and our own work that allows us to sit with presence, right? Rather than avoidance with the things that our clients are bringing to us. So my dear, you have just (laughs) published your first book, which is called Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. Okay. You gave me the gift and the privilege of writing the foreword to this book, which is magnificent and which is going to make a tremendous difference in the lives of people who are survivors of sexual trauma. So I wanted to start by thanking you for what you worked (laughs) hours and hours and hours and hours to create for us. So let me start by saying thank you for what you've done. I'm learning to say you're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) And I loved doing it. Uh, I am so appreciative to you. You know you were instrumental in so many parts of this book, but for writing the beautiful foreword that you did. So thank you to you as well. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with one of the lines from the book. When we're talking about trauma, you write, there is nothing wrong with you. Something happened to you. That's different. Tell us, Holly, why is that so important for survivors of trauma to hold? There is nothing wrong with you. Something happened to you. That's different. Mm -hmm. I feel like with sexual trauma in particular, there is such a direct and quick line to shame. Shame thrives in secrets. So the shame is... Not only did I do something wrong, but I can absolutely not share this, share my brokenness, share my fragility, share my responsibility for this, like all of these erroneous thoughts that live in survivor's head. So I'm going to think this is just about me and that I'm the problem and that I'm the broken one for what I didn't do. All of the blame gets placed on the self, on the survivor, instead of where it belongs, which is on the perpetrator. So sexual violence, especially, it doesn't happen 
to self. There's always another person involved, but it's been amazing to me over 14 years of doing this now. Gosh, that gets missed. It still gets missed. It just goes in. I'm broken. I'm wrong. Instead of, wow, something happened to me. I didn't inflict this on myself. That's why what you were saying before is when the survivor of trauma is angry, that is a celebration. That is a, that is a part of the process, right? It's a place to visit on the journey towards integration, towards peace, towards healing. Beautifully said. Because I can't be in both shame and in anger because anger is a direction outward. It is saying there, the, mm-hmm. the responsibility lies elsewhere and not inside of me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You do a number of things in this book. You provide information. You know, in the title of the book is, this is a sex positive guide. Okay, well, what does sex positive mean? You define it as saying all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. But in order to get us there, understanding what sex positivity means, you have to spend some time providing information, like providing foundational information about sexuality and about sexual violence, right? That was an important part of your book is to provide your reader with the information they need before you then take them on the journey of understanding trauma and healing. Yes, absolutely. I would say at least half, probably over half of the clients I see in my office don't know what to call what happened to them. If we don't even know how to talk about it, then how are we going to heal from it? So I feel like naming it, Mm-hmm. having self-awareness about it, understanding, and then healing. We have to have those pieces. And for me, it is important. Was it sexual abuse? Was it rape? Was it sexual assault? Was it sexual harassment? Really being able to wrap our hands around what happened to us, mm-hmm. right? Not what's wrong with me is a key piece in this puzzle. So to your point, the beginning of the book, especially the first two to three chapters are very kind of information dense. Mm -hmm. I think there's a story in my head, oh my gosh, is this boring? It's very necessary. And I know every survivor who reads through that will find their, oh, this is what happened to me. Yep. Right? They'll find their spot there. And then we can transition. Also, by starting with the information, you are, you know, I'm imagining you are like you're creating structures and paradigms and like a sort of a shelving system, a table, if Mm -hmm. you will, like a framework, a scaffolding that is essential. And I think also there's a way in which engaging our heads and our minds and our thoughts first before you ask us to engage our emotions and our bodies. It's a lovely entry point, actually, right? It's a gentle, like kind of dipping our toe in the water and moving more towards the deeper end. So I think it's a beautiful way to start. And the language does matter. And the language matters, in fact, for those survivors, especially where if they did share and if what was reflected back to them was that wasn't a big deal, that wasn't abuse, that wasn't trauma, that doesn't count, I had it worse. If any of those messages were some of the first messages a survivor received when they first shared their story, then those chapters are even more essential, right? Because you're saying, actually, you know what? You deserve to have proper and accurate language that reflects your experience. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I I can't say it any better than that. The first chapter is a lot of those definitions and information. And then the second chapter talks about sexual health, where we get into sex positivity. But my goal was to really look at the duality, the polarity between sexual trauma and sexual health, 
because they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And where we're going is the sexual trauma happened in the past. You're safe now. We're moving towards sexual health in your future. And that's what this book guides survivors through. Mm. Okay. So to the listener, this might be a great point to like just pause, sip some water, stretch your body, right? What we're talking about in this conversation is a lot. And one of the lines, Holly, that you use throughout the book that I first heard you use when we first met, which was at Esther Perel's conference a few years ago. And that line that you use, it really is a mantra, is that was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. And it's what you just said, right? That we understand sexual trauma as a part of our past and that what we get to move towards is sexual health. That was then and this is now. Absolutely. And really grounding ourselves in this place of safety because almost always the clients I'm working with, the survivors I'm working with are safe now, Mm -hmm. right? So we're grounding in the now. The only reason I say almost always is if there's still a domestic violence situation or something that they're still a little bit tangled in that we're extracting from. But over 90% of the time, the survivor is safe now. Alexander, you probably remember this and it shocks people. Most clients, most survivors don't walk into my office until on average 10 years after the trauma has happened. Mm -hmm. And they've spent that 10 years minimizing. It wasn't a big deal. Oh, this person said it wasn't great. They've had this chunk of time. I don't care if it was six months or 10 years. I've seen people 50 years later, 50 years later that have just been trying to manage it the whole time. So Again, thank you for repeating that mantra, one of my favorites. That was then, Mm -hmm. this is now. Here we are right now and you're safe. Where are we going? Absolutely. So before we move on to our listener question, I want to also talk a bit about the process that you take the reader through, which is three stages, control, pleasure, connection. So give us a sense of why the healing journey is framed in that way and a little bit about what each of those stages holds, control, pleasure, connection. Mm, Thank you. Reclaiming Pleasure, the book, is based on my dissertation from many years ago called The Recovery of Sexual Health After Sexual Assault. But Reclaiming Pleasure is about all kinds of sexual trauma. But those three elements were my dissertation. That's a grounded theory. That's what came out of the research. So let's talk about control. It absolutely makes sense. Survivors need to be in control of their lives and their sexual experiences and the relationships. Yes, 100%. What's on the other side though? So we've got maintaining control. There's relinquishing control. And I often find this is the place that I'm doing the most work with survivors because often they're quite guarded, quite boundaried, constricted, contracted, pleasure, our second facet isn't getting in. So the practice is how can you relinquish control? How can it just these little elements in your life, food, huge. Like I don't Mm -hmm. talk to a survivor of sexual trauma that usually doesn't have some food or exercise issue. So there's usually some entryway for me there. Okay. What, where can we loosen those boundaries with food or exercise a little bit? Some survivors, they have things placed in their house that that thing has to live there. That teapot has to live on that burner on the stove, or I don't feel safe. I'm not exaggerating. Like, this is, you know, so let's move the teapot for six hours today and see how you feel. Beautiful. Yes. 
And I love that in control, there's a way in which that word can feel, have a negative connotation. Nowhere Mm -hmm. in that whole description did I hear you say control over somebody else, control of somebody else. So that's so beautiful. You're not asking survivors to become controlling. You are asking them to look for ways in which the self, the more the self can feel in control and safe, the more we can relinquish control over the external world and make space. Next part, which is pleasure. Yes. You just delivered that more succinctly than I did. So thank you. Mm. So pleasure, if we're constricted and contracted, there's no way pleasure can get in and living a pleasureless life that's surviving. It's not thriving. It's not the sense of eros, the life force, the vivacity, the vitality that we're looking for. And again, a lot of survivors are constricted, contracted. So I have to suss out and we investigate and we get curious about where can pleasure come back in. So again, we'll look at food or outings, time with people, travel. Then we look at sexuality. How do you start having pleasure for yourself in your body? And then it might be with a partner. So self-pleasure, sex with self is really where I go first before we're talking about bringing anyone else into this picture. Beautiful. I love this idea that recovery from sexual trauma is not just healing the trauma. It's also, it is through pleasure, right? It is the invitation into pleasure, that pleasure is a force of healing. It's not extra. It's not optional. Like it is integral to the healing journey. And you make that point throughout the book in ways that are very powerful and very permission giving. So I think a lot of people, especially those who've been socialized in the feminine, we have really negative associations with pleasure as well. Pleasure is indulgent. Pleasure is greedy. Pleasure is selfish. So I love the way in which you bring this attitude of positivity to pleasure, that it is actually essential and it is actually a potent force for healing. And that you remind us pleasure is not just in the realm of the erotic. And so that's another way that you invite us to step in slowly and gently around pleasure, that there's lots of ways to explore pleasure before we start working on exploring the pleasure within our own bodies and around sexuality. Yes. And when we're through control, when we're through maintaining and relinquishing in a way that we know we are safe, we step into pleasure. So there's these different aspects of our lives that we're accepting pleasure, inviting pleasure in. Then we have this third piece, which is, it's a beautiful mountain. It's one that survivors have to climb and it's connection. I wish, I so wish that this was a journey that we could do for ourselves. And I'm constantly trying to reinforce to survivors, I know you're strong. I know this would feel so much better if you could do this alone. And this could be an autonomous process. There's a space for this, but the healing is in connection. And again, when you know that you are safe, you are boundaried and how you connect to others and that you can be vulnerable, but you're gonna feel this profound sense of empowerment and embodiment that I just have never seen anyone get on their own. And connection comes in all forms. So I'm not saying, oh, you have to be partnered to heal. Please don't hear that. But there has to be elements of connection in your life. Beautiful. And that comes in all kinds of forms, friendship and collegial relationships Mm -hmm. and showing up for volunteer work, as well as intimate partnership, which maybe feels like, can feel like one of the scariest spaces. But it's also, you know, as you're saying that, I'm also thinking about how vital your book is for people who are partnered with survivors of trauma, right? To really, those of us who are partnered with survivors of trauma get to have the privilege of being an ally in somebody else's healing, right? And it's not work that a partner can do for, 
a survivor, but it certainly is like a partner's own journey into education and empathy and knowledge and tools and skills is essential. The whole book is a beautiful offering as well for people who are partnered with survivors of trauma for that very reason that connection is going to be part of the journey. Yes. And to your point, this might be doing volunteer work at your local crisis center. It might be going to speak Mm. at your local high school. It might be giving a monetary donation that is completely anonymous. It might be talking to another friend who has experienced this. So there's no one way for connection. You don't have to do anything, but there's that finding your space in it, whether this stays between you and an intimate partner or whether you use your voice and go out there in the world to shout it loudly. But back where we started, sexual trauma doesn't happen in solitude, nor can it be healed that way. Hmm. Beautiful. Yep. But there's always another person involved. Mm -hmm. So I want to move us on to the listener question. But I, you know, I pulled the last few lines of the foreword. And I want to share the last few lines of the foreword as, as our sort of like segue into the listener question, because I think that this, you know, Anybody who is a survivor who has listened to this conversation so far, like I celebrate you and I, it takes tremendous courage. So when I was, you know, wrapping up Holly's forward, here's what I wrote. I want to thank you, the reader, for picking up this book. You are reclaiming control, pleasure and connection within your life. But the rest of us are also the beneficiaries because the less energy that you need to expend containing pain and carrying blame, the more energy you have available to share your light, your gifts, and your kindness with the world. Your healing is our healing. Thank you. And Holly, that's what your book does. When you partner with a survivor, whether it's through the book, through your therapy office, through this conversation, you are supporting a survivor in moving through the trauma so that they get to shine more brightly. And then we get to bask in their light, right? Bask in their gifts in the way in which they can then show up more fully for the world around them. So it is work that a survivor does for themselves, but it's work that we all get to benefit from. Yes, yes, yes. And I just, this is a big statement, but I I know the world would be a better place when survivors stop holding on to that shame and speak their truth, use their voice, celebrate their pleasure, celebrate those connections. I kind of get this image in my mind of this beautiful ripple effect where all of us are just, to use your words, basking in the light of celebration, inclusivity, feeling our own power. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to our, I could like stay on this top, but the listener question ties to everything we've been talking about. So let us dive into this listener question. So Today's question comes from someone in New York, and she has asked not for us to use her name. She uses she, her pronouns. And here's what she's written to us. In terms of the dating world, how soon should one bring up during or after a date that there has to be a certain level of comfort before engaging in a sexual encounter? I know it varies for us all, but I fear that whenever it comes up for me, It comes across as a defensive tactic as opposed to a way to open the lines of communication. I guess what I'm asking is, what can be an effective way to bring up waiting to be intimate with someone without it coming across as a demand? It is something that I struggle with sometimes because I am very outspoken and straightforward. I want to find a way to get the message across in a softer way. Thank you. All right, Holly. 
Let's explore this question. Where would you like to begin? I want to begin by thanking her and maybe offering, letting herself off the hook. She's straightforward and boundaried, and that has been necessary. So she is very much taking care of herself that way, and that's okay. And wow, this enormous self-awareness where she's kind of saying, you know what, I think that's not working so well. Is there another way for me to keep myself safe, but perhaps not um, come across so straightforwardly? Mm-hmm. It's really tricky because one of the things that we know, I mean, she's identifying as a woman. We have no idea who she is articulating these boundaries to. If she is articulating these boundaries to male partners, what I'm going to be aware of is that she has spent a lifetime in ways large and small being told that protecting men's egos is of the utmost importance. The way that we socialize our boys and our men is to be very afraid of rejection, to be very afraid of being told no, to take no's as, you know, reflections of their self-worth, right? So that every interaction becomes something to either win or lose, to be proven, you know, strong or weak. Embedded in this question is this problematic nature that then for a woman to articulate to a man, it's going to take me a while, that she is then telling him something negative about him or that she is hurting him rather than saying like, here's what I'm going to need, right? So clarity is not inherently cruelty. Clarity is not inherently rejection. Saying I've got some clear lines is not inherently rejecting him or saying something negative to him. So I want to just like make sure that like to sort of name that I think very often we as women are afraid that our boundaries are going to come across as hurtful. And it it may be what you're saying too, Holly, that perhaps she is, you know, a bit more firm and clear than she needs to be. But I also want to hold open the possibility that it may be that she has a real sensitivity because so many women do a real sensitivity that firmness is somehow hostile, right? Yes. And I thought the same exact thing when I read the question. There's a big part of me that's like, well, too bad for your partner. They need to get over it because you're just stating your boundaries and you're being clear Mm -hmm. and they need to learn to step into your space. But there's also such a kind of a vulnerability in how she asked the question that she really might be in the self-aware space. That's like, you know, I think there's something I could be doing differently. That's what I hear her asking. So I want to offer what she could possibly be doing differently too. But again, I think both of you and I are saying to her, what if it's not you? (laughs) (laughs) Let's just hold that possibility (laughs) on the table. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I was wanting us to kind of tease out both this like internal piece of how will she know when she's ready to layer in sex. I want her, when she presents this to a new partner, to be really grounded in a sense of, here's what I know I will be feeling and thinking, you know, emotionally, here's what my body will be saying when I'm ready, right? So I want her to be clear on her insides. She's not making some abstract it must be date number seven, or it must be month number five. But that it really is, it comes from a sense of like, how does she want to be feeling when she's ready to layer in sexuality, right? That's where I want her to take her self-awareness next is how will she know when Mm -hmm. she's ready? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And that how question now, Sandra, you know, that how question is so important to me through my somatic work. So I'm not a person that looks at why, because it's all so brain-based. So that how question, go to your process, go to your body. How do you want to feel when you're even considering opening up the question to how are we going to move forward with our sex lives? Right. Because that's going to be different with every different date she is on. Mm -hmm. So just having that sense for herself, like you said, there's no, it has to be date number three, month number four to have this conversation. How does she want to feel? Does she know she's safe? Does she know she's grounded? Has she stepped into a space of vulnerability in other areas? That was a question I had. Uh huh. Uh huh. Has she offered something a little bit vulnerable about herself? And how has that been met? Beautiful. Right. Because it's not, you know, readiness to be sexual doesn't happen in a vacuum. She can't possibly figure this out for herself. It has to be figured out in the space between herself and the person that she is considering being sexual with. Right. So it's not just her own felt sense is a part of it, but it's also, I want her to be thinking about like, what is the relationship feeling like? What does she want to be giving and receiving within the context of this relationship with this partner that will help her feel ready to move into a sexual space with this person? And, and a lot of it does, I think, have to do with vulnerability. How has this person met her vulnerable disclosures so far, right? What are the ways that she is taking little baby steps towards opening up to this new person? And how is that person responding to her vulnerable shares? I think that's a part of it too, right? That those little non-sexual, non-erotic movements towards openness, what's the feedback loop like between the two of them? Yes. So once she's in that felt sense, once she's kind of wrapped her, her head and her heart around that, here's an offering that I have she could say to her partner, I'm curious what feels comfortable for you about bringing sex into our relationship. I'm curious in the past, what has worked best for you in relationship? At what point do you bring sex in? Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Which is so different. I think, you know, sometimes like early in dating, people often understandably want to understand a bit about somebody's sexual history. But rather than it being a conversation about how many people or what kinds of sex, you're encouraging this listener to ask a really different kind of question. Will you say it again? Because I think it's so yes. powerful. I'm curious for you, when has it felt comfortable to bring sex into your relationships? I'm trying to think of a different way I could say it, but that's, no, it's, it's about timing. Yep. It's about, and, and then let's just say that the partner says, well, if I don't have great sex on the first date, then it's really a no-go for me. Or, uh -huh. gosh, I just really wait till I get comfortable with that person and I ask the person what feels good for them. And then it just kind of goes from there. Those uh -huh. are two such <laughs> different answers. Somebody who says to her, if I don't have sex right up front, I'm not going to be able to connect. That is such wonderful information to know because I don't know how you move through that. She's saying, right. I need comfort before I have sex. Mm -hmm. And this person is saying, I need sex before I can even imagine comfort. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being so clear much. with me. I don't even you know. That's not that. I don't know how you move through that, you know, unless the other person is like, huh, I have had a really clear, very strict first date or nothing policy, 
but I wonder if I might want to reconsider it. Then maybe there's some room for maneuverability here. But otherwise, that person has just told you something really important about how they work and they're likely not going to be a great fit for you. Because the last thing we want is for her to sell out or move away from her own sense of clear boundaries in the service of maintaining somebody else's interest because it is not just a setup for lousy sex because she's not going to feel safe and grounded, but it also is a setup for resentment, right? If she makes the choice to extend her sexual boundary in order to please them, placate them, engage them, she is, you know, at least going to end up feeling resentful. Yes. And it's a bit of a relational, I hate the word test, but I don't even know how else to say it. So let's go there. So I'm curious in the past, when has it felt good to integrate sex into your relationships? Mm -hmm. And then the partner says, gosh, I just, I wait until it really, we feel connected and we're having fun together and it just kind of naturally goes. There isn't an exact timeline, but I know how I need to feel. And then they say, I'm curious what works for you. Oh, right. <laughs> right. And now we're having, and now we're having a conversation. Right. And now the conversation is not the one she's afraid of. The one she's afraid of is when I articulate my sexual boundaries, it comes across as a demand. And now we're in a power struggle. The conversation that you are framing out as a possibility is a relational conversation where each of us is exploring and putting into voice our own experiences of comfort and readiness. It's a very, very different kind of conversation that really is possible only if we move away from this sort of like patriarchal, heteronormative gender role script, which is that women are nothing more than sexual gatekeepers, the, the power of no this whole sort of like problematic script around, you know, you have to wait in order to keep his interest or in order like that the idea of where you put your boundary is in order to keep him interested or keep him in his place. And rather than it being what we really want sex to always, always, always be, which is like a beautiful, mutual, co-created experience that can only happen when two people have equivalent amounts of voice and power and agency. Yes, yes. And for survivors, we have to remember the no didn't work. There was a point in time where the no didn't work. Oh. So of course, they might be either more direct and clear on their boundaries, or they're still a little squishy, but the no was at some point disrespected. So of course, there's going to be a lot of attention to the no. So let's say that's the best case scenario. The partner says, oh, I'm curious what has worked for you. If she doesn't get that from the partner, she just needs to be vulnerable and brave and step into, thank you so much for telling me that. Here's what's worked for me in the past. Fine. I need to get to know someone better. I need to feel safe. If the partner isn't offering, which I so hope they do, but there's a nice gentle space for her to step into where I hope she doesn't feel demanding or too controlling or too straightforward. That's right. And that is true whether or not she is a survivor of sexual trauma herself, right. but it is especially true if she is a survivor of sexual trauma. And that part that you just brought our attention to is that for every sexual trauma survivor, there's a time in which the no didn't work. It's inevitable that the trauma is going to be somewhere in this conversation around 
articulation of boundaries. And that's not to say that if she is a survivor, that she's under any obligation to share her story, but just to know within herself that, of course, the trauma is somewhere around this question of when and how will I articulate my boundary and how will my boundary be received? Mm-hmm. Thank you for reminding us of that piece of this. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm excited for her. And I'm excited for her to consider where you took her right off the bat is maybe it's them and not you. So I really, I just want her to step into this space because we are just chiseling away at the system. In the last few months, something that happened big in the news yesterday, I mean, survivors are just speaking up. And again, if this reader is a survivor or not, but just really women stepping forward and using their voice and saying, you know what, these no's have been treaded on, trampled on for too long. So now I'm negotiating, I'm renegotiating my place in the world and in relationships. Beautiful. And again, we have no idea whether she's articulating these boundaries with people who identify as male or female. We don't know Mm -hmm. that, but there's an important piece here for the men of the world to really be continuing to do their own work. And I'm so, I'm so encouraged by, you know, the young men that I get to work with at Northwestern and, you know, see in my practice where there is like such a growing edge around knowing that they have not been given the tools that they need either, right? And that they have, that there is a way in which we socialize, as we said before, boys and men to kind of bring this like question of, if you're really interested in me, you will be ready to have sex with me. And that that is how I will know that you really like me or that is how I will know. I think we're offering, I get really encouraged talking to parents as well who are having conversations with their sons about consent and pleasure and how consent and pleasure go absolutely hand in hand Mm -hmm. so that the conversation isn't, when do I get to? It's really like, how might we move ourselves together into a space that honors both of our interests, both of our excitements and both of our needs around pacing? Like that's a very different way into the conversation. It is. And for this listener who wrote in, again, we don't know there might be the trauma piece, but also this idea of what I read between the lines, maybe. So if there's not a trauma piece that happened, there's this idea of I need to get to know someone before I want to sleep with them. Now we're talking about demisexuality, which I'm so happy we have in the cultural lexicon now. That is not weird. That's another way that people can identify. It is not weird. It is as normal as anything else. So demisexual. So they need to feel the relational bond before they can even feel the sexual bond. So there's that consideration within that lives in this question as well. Absolutely. In that way, as she grounds herself in this is who I am and this is what I need, it's not an apology and it's not an attack. It is sharing a part of me. This is what I know about myself. And so in getting to know me, here's something else that you need to know about me. So nothing about you. It's not a demand. It is a part of me that I'm expressing and letting you get to know. Yes. Yes. Which is so much the heart of dating, right? Are these like yes. sort of little steps of peeling back the layers and that that process, of course, takes time. It, it takes time to get to know. I wonder if that's also helpful as she grounds this as a part of who she is, then of course, it's going to take some time for her to kind of share all of the facets of herself and that she can only share those facets of herself as quickly as the space feels safe and worthwhile to share those parts of herself. And so 
talking about her sexual boundaries and her sexual needs and her demisexuality just becomes another part of the revelatory process, right? The process of revealing ourselves slowly and bit by bit over time in the process of dating. Yes. So it's not these two positions that live on either end of the spectrum of, oh, I just betray myself and do whatever the partner wants, or I have to be, for a feminine person, I have to be super clear and rigid about what I'm asking for. There's all this beautiful space in between that where we don't sell ourselves out, nor do we have to be so rigid that we feel like we can't connect. Beautiful. I love it. I want to thank the person who sent in this question. I'm so glad that you sent this question in. I think that it is something that comes up all the time. I have I've had this, lots of variations of this question. And I'm especially glad, Holly, that you and I talked about it because I think that you bring depth and wisdom around not just the kind of internal pieces, which may or may not have to do with trauma, but also these relational and conversational pieces. So I really appreciate being able to talk about this one with you. Oh, and I think the reader as well. And Alexandra, your insight here is just, it's been so fun to explore. So I know that after this conversation, people are going to want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing. So what's the best way for people to find you, Holly? So this can be through social media and I'm at Dr. Holly Richmond. So it's at D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. My website is drhollyrichmond.com. The book, Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex-Positive Guide for Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life is now available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books. And indie bookshops. I love um, sending people to bookshop.org, which is a website, like sort of a clearinghouse, and, and that website will find you your local indie bookseller. So it's a wonderful resource. You may or may not have an indie bookseller in your neighborhood, but bookshop.org will help you find one. But that's right. Grab your copy of Reclaiming Pleasure and keep up with all of the things that Holly is working on. Holly, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you, Alexandra. It's been so nice to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly, for working through this listener question with me and for discussing the essential lessons from Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. You, listeners, will find a link to Dr. Holly's book in the show notes, as well as support and helpline resources. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.